<laughs> okay. So we uh, started last week with beginning of your Miyahu, the call of your Miyahu. Thank you. And um, wanted to continue. We're not going to do every chapter. We'll be jumping around to some extent. Uh, the one, the one, uh, the one call we didn't actually discuss last week. Come back to it. Is actually the one of Yechezkel, which is actually extremely interesting. Uh, it's different. It's a lengthy description of how he gets chosen, and the revelation that he has in the beginning of Yechezkel. So he's also it's also Kohen. It's also quite interesting. And and one of the questions is, you know, one of the things to look at is how the Kahuna figures in the story of Yirmiyahu, the book of Yirmiyahu, and uh, on the other hand, how the Kahuna figures in the story of Yechezkel. In both of the books, the priesthood is very central, but it's very central in a completely different way. So maybe we'll have time in the future to touch upon that. Maybe someday we'll study Yechezkel. Who knows? Anything's possible. But in any event, uh, the calling is the first chapter. In the second chapter, which we're not going to look at right now, the second chapter uh, is an indictment of the people which is most of the book of Yirmiyahu. Uh, and uh, the uh, part of the uh, complaint that Yirmiyahu has, presenting God's position, of course, is that it's twofold. First of all, that's the verse in the second chapter. Let's find that verse. Yes, it's verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Shtayim ra'ota sa'ami. The people have done two bad things, two wrongs. First of all, they abandoned me, says God. The, 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 the space of living water. So they abandoned that which is alive and gives life. 13, verse number 13. Yeah. And then, So they, now which they abandoned me, the space of living water, but they hew for themselves cisterns, broken ones, which can't even hold the water. So that's the complaint. The complaint is twofold. First of all, the abandonment of God, and second of all, that where they went, what they they look for, uh, they went to places that cannot actually help them, and quite the opposite in the long descriptions of idolatry that are associated with bad behavior across the board, all kinds of immoral acts, etc., in any event, that's one of the main verses of chapter 2, two and that's an indictment that will come through in many places throughout the book. Now, the Yirmiyahu is largely, certainly the first half of the book, is largely uh, indictments of the people. It's funny, when you read Yechezkel, by the way, it's even worse. Yechezkel and Yirmiyahu essentially are prophets that live at the same time. There's overlap, a lot of overlap. Uh, the difference is the Yechezkel is actually up in, he's already in, he's already in, uh, in Bavel. And Yermio is in the land of Israel. But they actually are, are living at the same time. It's very interesting. And you get a, a different perspective from these two prophets. There are many commonalities and there are many differences as well. In any event, uh, it's a second parak, which is the Haftorah that we read two weeks before Tisha B'av. It's the second of the three Haftorot of, of Puranita. And uh, that's chapter two. So 
we will have occasion to come back to chapter two to touch upon chapter two, but I wanted to look this morning at chapter three, which has a couple of very interesting things, uh, interesting uh, things in the chapter, very unusual. So let's begin with chapter three. And the first unusual thing about chapter three is the way it starts. It starts with the word lemar, which is very unusual. I don't think there's another verse in the Bible that starts with the word lemar. So what's, how did missing? what's missing? Well, Hashem el So Lemar is a elliptical statement, and it sounds like it's sort of a citation. The JPS translates and it puts it in parentheses. The word of God came to me as follows. <coughs> but the word of God isn't mentioned. So Lemar seems like some kind of a citation. Yermiel is referencing some other text. And the text he references is this. Hein yeshalach ish et ishto v'halcha me'ito v'aito v'ishacher. If a man <coughs> sent away his wife and she left him and then she she marries another man v'aito v'ishacher ha'yoshuv od can the wife return ever to the first husband? No. Well, that's his rhetorical question. We'll see. Would the land not be chanaf? Now, chanaf, it's hard to find the precise translation in Hebrew. Right, so chanifa means, you know, flattery, which is false flattery, but it doesn't mean that over here. So chanaf, here they translate defiled. So we'll leave it as defiled. Maybe somebody has a different translation. Something along those lines. Chanaf techanaf aretz. Hahi, it would not land not be defiled. Fiat Zonit Reim Rabim. You have uh, you have been promiscuous with who would they translate? Many, many lovers. Vishove Hashem. So presumably it's a rhetorical question. Can you return to me, says God? So that's so Kalvachomer. If a woman is sent out, divorced, and then she marries somebody else. So she's allowed to marry somebody else. But she can't return to the first husband. And you, not only do you not get married to somebody else, can you return? That's how the chapter begins. The presumption is that's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. As ever, as we'll see in the, in the situation, that's not clear. In fact... Let's just first of all, let's find the verse that the Yermio is citing. We have to remember he's a Kohen, and the Kohanim have more than one role. But one of the roles of the Kohanim, which is found certainly in the prophetic writings and in the book of Dvarim, you go to the Shofet, the Kohanim Halviyim Bayamim Ahem. You see already in, in Sefer Dvarim that the Kohanim seem to have a special role as judges. So if they're judges, then presumably they're also knowledgeable. And uh, Yermio, in his book, makes many references to, I would say, to uh, halachic sections of the Torah. He makes many references, in general, to Sefer Dvarim. There's a lot of common language. Sefer Dvarim and Yermio is a lot of common language. But in addition to that, specifically, there are phrases that appear in Yermio where he points us towards halachic sections of the Torah. The particular verses he's referring to over here are in the book of Dvarim. So let's take a look at that. That is uh, chapter 24, page 400, well, now you have different translations, 
but it's chapter 24 of the book of Devarim, the first few verses. This JPS is 425, but it's chapter 24. It goes, it says, Ki kach ishi If a man takes a wife, Ubala becomes her husband, he literally possesses her. And if, if she doesn't find favor in his eyes. Ki he found something, ervatavar. It's not clear what ervatavar It's negative for sure. He then translates something obnoxious about her. Erva is usually a sexual thing, so we don't know what he found wrong. Just didn't like her, or she misbehaved in his eyes, or etc. That's a debate in the Talmud, actually. What are grounds for, for, for divorce? Or if you need grounds altogether. Because uh, he shall write for her a sefer kritut. A book which uh, which uh, which breaks the relationship. Sefer Kritu, Lichrot is to to cut. So he writes a Sefer Kritu. We call it a get nowadays. And he get, puts it in her hand. He sends her out of his house. She leaves his house. And she went and she uh, became the wife of another man. This is part of the story. This is not the... This is not the core halacha over here. This is the description of the case. And then, the second guy hates her. And he gives her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and he sends her out of the house. Or the second husband dies. If he dies, which severs the marriage. So the first husband who sent her out is not permitted to take her back. Why not? After she has become defiled. This is an abomination. You shall not bring sin upon the land. So it talks about the land here as well. So there's something which is problematic about this scenario. Now, what exactly is problematic about it is a very good question. What's, what's so terrible? A woman gets divorced, and then the uh, husband doesn't like, for some reason, they can't get along, marries somebody else, that doesn't work. Then she realizes the first guy was better, and he, he misses her, so live happily ever after. So the Torah says that's not permitted. The Torah says that's, in the words of the Talmud, that's machzir grushato. Oh, if she doesn't remarry, then she can return. Right. right. Not, only, not only that, by the way, the Talmud assumes, which is exactly the opposite of Yirmiyahu, that if she has enough, if she's if she's living with somebody, not married, she can also go back. Wow. So it's interesting that the, in Yirmiyahu has a kavachom in the other direction, and the, you have the reim rabim. So what, what does that mean? So that, in, in, technically, from the Talmudic standpoint, she could go back, actually, in that case. Yirmiyo thinks that that's worse. I thought it was the fact that there was a sexual act with some intervening partner that made her not able to go back. So you saw it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the Talmud doesn't say that. The, the, the Psuki may, may say that. The Talmud assumes otherwise. The Talmud assumes she can go back, only if she's married. It's very interesting. And it's not obvious from the Psukim at all, but that's... she's married to... 
second, second guy. If she's and married she, to the second, she, she can't, can't go back. That's yeah. right. But if she was living with him and not married, she can't. According to the Talmud, according yeah. to the Talmud, she can go back to the first guy. In any case, except if she's married. Right, Once she's married to the second fellow, she can't go back to the first guy. I'm saying the psukim don't sound that way, but in any event, chapter 24, first few verses of chapter 24. This is called Machzir Grushato. Now the Talmud speaks a lot about this because there's another parsha in the Chumash, which is a, not exactly the same case, and that is the parsha called Sota. The parsha of the Sota is where a man suspects his wife of having an affair. He doesn't know for sure. So then he, the, she goes through this. He can bring it to the, to the Kohen, and they have a whole ritual to determine the innocence or guilt. Now that's what the Talmud calls Suffolk Sota, because he don't know. What about, if, what about if, if actually he does know? What about if witnesses come and said she had an affair with X or whatever? So then, apart from her own punishment, whatever it is, there she's forbidden to, to, to live with him. That's what's called the sota. That's, that's actually very important. That's all kinds of practical she's implications forbid, nowadays, too. To go back? She's forbidden to live with the husband in that case. She had an affair with someone. And she's also forbidden to live with the guy she had the affair with. But that's... that's if there are witnesses. If there are witnesses. Yeah. If there are no witnesses, he can take her to the, for the priest, to the yeah, sota yeah, ritual. That. Right. That's called suffix sota. That's a suffix sota. Now, so this is the parsha that Yermio is, is, is referring to. Chapter 24, Machzir Grushato, and he says, if, you know, it says in the Torah, he doesn't say those words, but we lay more, it's deciding something. It is written, it is written that in the case of this particular case, it's interesting, this is the, these, these verses are the source of the halacha that in order to get divorced, you have to have a get. In point of fact, in my view anyway, the Chumash says no such thing. Doesn't suggest this at all. What it does suggest is something very different. In order to marry somebody else, you need evidence of the fact that you're divorced. But there's not a sense in the plain reading of the Chumash that you require a get to be divorced. The get is Mishuchami Beito. He throws her out of the house, whatever it is, moves out of the house, and that's divorce, basically. But now she wants to marry somebody else. So the second guy says, How can I marry you? Married to X. No, I'm not. Look. Yeah, safer creatures. He gave me a, 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 a bill of divorce. The bill of divorce in the, in the pshat of the Chumash, I think, is just to demonstrate that, in fact, you are, you're no longer married. But to actually sever the marriage in the Chumash doesn't seem to require any kind of document whatsoever. That would change a lot of things today if we implemented that. But that's the, the for whatever reason, which is a very good question, the, the, the Talmud doesn't go in that direction, obviously. But but it doesn't sound that way, actually. It's true. That's true. So you could read it that way, but this, this plain way to read it, I think, is that she she needs evidence, she needs proof. Now, the truth of the matter is that in terms of the Talmudic discussion, the Talmud assumes you need to get to sever the marriage or, or death. But the Talmud does also talk about the nature of this document, that the document has to be one which allows for evidence, for proof. That's the that's where one of the main issues about documents, about star, about contracts, comes up in this context. What is the point of a contract? Is it to effect something, or is it to serve as proof? Or maybe the very fact that it serves as proof effects it. That's also a possibility. In any event, I just raise this as a side point. It's not our main issue. So in the Chumash, 
That, that's what Yirmiyahu quotes. Now, what's interesting is before you get to Yirmiyahu, which we'll get to in a minute, there is actually another parsha in the Chumash. This is chapter 24 of Dvarim. But there's another parsha in the book of Dvarim, which is chapter 30. Chapter 30, Yirmiyahu is obviously playing with these two chapters in the book of Dvarim, as Yirmiyahu often plays with Sefer Dvarim. Plays with or whatever, or they have commonalities, even, but they have a lot in common. Now in chapter 30, verse number, yeah, one, right at the beginning of chapter 30 of Sefer Dvarim, the previous chapter, it's very interesting to see how the, how the prophetic writings cast a light on what it says in the Chumash. The previous chapter, which is chapter 29, talks about uh, a, 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 a covenant with the people. It's part of this covenant that is set up at the end of Sefer Dvarim with the people. There's the covenant of Sinai, and there's the covenant of the plains of Moab, which is the subject of the last of the end of, of the book of Devarim. In fact, the end of last verse of chapter twenty-eight, which is all about the admonition, the blessings, and the curses, many many curses. These are the words of the covenant, which God commanded Moshe to lichrot at bnei Yisrael, to set to to literally to cut, what to conclude, korate brit. Apart from the covenant that God made with them in in uh, in uh, Chorev. so it's interesting, by the way, that so the the term to to make a covenant, to set up a covenant is lichrot brit. Maybe it does connect to sefer kritut. It's the breaking of a covenant of sorts. So, in other words, in any event, that's chapter. That's the last verse. Of, and chapter twenty nine then begins. You, you, you saw everything. And then in verse number 9, you are, you are standing today before God. And it goes on, and what, for what purpose you stand before God today, says Moshe, in verse 11. You stand today before God to enter into a, 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 a covenant with God. So there are two covenants. There's the covenant of Sinai, that happened already, and this book of Devarim seems to be referring to a second covenant, which is the covenant of the plains of Moab, and the the blessings and the curses related to this second covenant, and the continuation. You stand before God today to enter into the covenant, presumably refers to the second covenant, which is the covenant of the plains of Moab. Now, in this second covenant, this is what's extremely interesting. In this second covenant, so the, of course you could ask the question, why do you need a second covenant altogether? Why isn't one covenant sufficient? So the simple answer in the Chumash, I think, there are all kinds of all kinds of responses to this, but the simple answer is that the two covenants of the Torah relate to the two generations. So the covenant of Sinai was made with the people that left Egypt. Shortly after we leave Mitzrayim, there's a covenant. The covenant of the plains of Moab, which is made with the second generation, or the first generation died. So the second generation, they have a different experience. They were never in Egypt in the first place. They live in the de- they, they travel through the desert. They've been learning for 40 years, etc., etc., ready now to enter. 
So the, you would not know that. It depends. Moshe talks to them where is the question. Uh, right. You would you wouldn't know. Moshe in the book of Bamidbar talks to them identically, which is why he probably deposed. In the book of Devarim, he says it many times. Right. He says, you have seen all the miracles of God and you misbehaved. It's mostly about chastising the people and you're going to do it again and you can't rely upon me. I'm not going to be around. That is true. He does end with blessings, but for the most part is chastisement. But here's what's very interesting about chapter 29. When we studied the Sefer Devarim, I spoke about this several times. It's very important. It would appear that in this chapter 29, beginning in verse number 9, the concern of the Torah is primarily that even though we stand before God and enter into a covenant, but the concern is that people may secretly uh, be thinking about violating the covenant. And you have this, it appears throughout chapter 29. For example, in chapter 29, verse number 17, Isha Wisha. Perchance, there is someone amongst you, a man, a woman, a clan, a tribe, whose heart is even now turning away from God. So you're all standing, say, yes, yes, yes. But some people may be thinking in their own hearts, we're not going to really follow all this stuff. We'll do whatever we want. We're going to uh, follow our desires. And then in verse 19, verse 18, I'm sorry. Person, when person hears the, the, this, these curses, because the covenant comes with punishments, comes with alot, which are curses. And the person, as if to say, will bless himself. In other words, he's going to think, that's for them, you know? Uh, Shalom Yeli, I'm going to be okay. I'll do whatever I want. Bishri I will follow my own willful heart. Difficult phrase. To the ruin of moist and dry alike. In other words, I'll do whatever I please. No one's going to know the difference. And I'm going to do it. It's, it's, it's in my heart, so no, nobody's going to know. <laughs> So the Torah says, if that be the case, God will not forgive that person. But on the, the contrary is true. But rather, the anger of God and God's jealousy, right, will rise up against that person. And all of the curses that are written in the book the curses that we read in the last chapter, which are very lengthy. And God will erase the name of that person from under the heavens. And then it goes on, and God will single the person out. So that's what's going to happen. So there's a particular emphasis on people doing things uh, uh, secretly, I would say secretly, uh, and uh, thinking they're going to get away with it, and God's anger will be kindled, and God will wipe this person's name out from under the heavens, and God will single this person out according to the words of the covenant written in the book. 
Sefer HaTorah, the emphasis on the book, to the extent, and the parsha continues, that in later years, people will come to the land and they'll see the terrible destruction, like Sodom and Amorah, and they'll say, what happened here? What you're thinking to do. You'll make a decision in your heart not to follow what, 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 what you're being taught. Right? Now, whether you act secretly or not is a good question. I, I think you act secretly as well. Uh, it's not totally clear. You have to remember that the last verse of this section, but we'll get to that in a second. Before that, people will wonder why the terrible destruction? What is this all about? And the answer, which is in verse 24, they violated the covenant that God made with them. They went and served other gods. They bowed down to them. To them. And in verse 26, God got very angry to bring about the curse which is written down in the book. And God threw them off the land. With great anger, great wrath, great anger. And God threw them, threw them away, threw them out of the land. And the last verse, The hidden things are for God. That which we know to correct, we correct. But nistarot, that is what is baseter, what is hidden, God knows those things. And God will act upon those things. So that the last verse actually can be read in multiple ways. But if you read it that way, then the entire parsha seems to be about someone who violates the Torah secretly, makes the determination secretly, and presumably acts in secret as well. That is an excellent question. Actually, I will say two things. First of all, it's that it could be the individual. But the Torah says, Penyesh b'chem isha if it be a man or a woman, or mishpacha, or a family, or shevet, or a tribe, it's not necessarily limited to the individual. Having said that, your question is a very important question, supremely important question, and there's an entire story in the Bible that revolves exactly around that question. What story is that? Achan. Story of Achan. That's a very important story. That's exactly the story. One fellow sins, and, there's, and the Israel loses the battle. So how come? That was Yoshua's question to God. Well, what is this? One guy, one guy made a mistake, and everybody is, what is that about? So that is a central question of this story, and the short answer, I think, is that, however we understand it, that once you cross into the land, it's different than in the desert. In the desert, you're living as a community of sorts. When you come into the land, and you establish your own government, and it's different then you become responsible for the next person. Then there's a kind of corporate responsibility for whatever reason. Maybe you should have known. Maybe even if you don't know, you're still part of it. There are a lot of ways to explain it. But that's a very important point. And what distinguishes the parsha here from the first parsha is that they're about to cross into the land. So they become a community with all the responsibilities. Now here's my point about this business. When you read chapter 29, actually, 29... What it sat with the language of chapter 29 is taken from, very much related to, the parsha which we have in the book of Bamidbar called Sota. All the language of 29 is in parsha Sota, beginning with doing something secretly, 
right? Baseter, doing something baseter, right? Uh, that's there. The idea of the, 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 in that case, the husband being jealous that you have over here, being extremely angry that you have over here, the violation of a trust that you have over here, the idea of wiping the person's name out. In, in the parsha of Sota, you take, you first you write something down by Sefer. That's very, that's very important. You write God's name down by Sefer. It's one of the examples we have in the Bible of writing, of writing something, writing a text. And the Sefer is put into the bitter waters. The bitterness is found here as well, in verse number 17. Lest there be one amongst you who wormwood, gall and wormwood, those are bitter things. And the, the Sefer in the parish of Sota the, is put into the bitter waters and dissolves into the waters. Right? Macha is, is, is erased into the water. And over here we have God will erase the name of that person from under the heavens. On top of that, in the parasha of Sota, if the woman, in fact, were guilty, she is singled out from amongst the community. And you have over here the same thing. In short, and you have the word Allah, curses. It's written that the curses are written down. In short, it's fair to say that the entire chapter 29, from beginning to end, is modeled upon the parsha of Sota. That's a, actually a very, very, very significant point. When you see it, it's obvious, but it's not obvious before you see it. What? In Sota, you're trying to find out if she's innocent. Here, you're assuming the guilt. I don't know if we're trying to find out if she's innocent or not. We're trying to find out if she's innocent or guilty. It's a way, it is true. But she can, she, well, I mean, the presumption of the Torah, a, a right. There are many ways to explain the parsha of Sota. I do think that it's fair to say that the parsha of Sota presumes some kind of guilt. Now the question is, how guilty is she? Is she... I think the Torah presumes it. The Torah... The Torah, not that she's guilty of an affair necessarily, but she's called a sota. A sota means one who veers, one who strays, one who veers. So the she certainly veered. <coughs> the question is how far is she veered? That's the question. But he has he has some kind of grounds, even in the Chumash. <coughs> now it's true that the Talmud ch radically changes many elements of it. That's for sure. In the Talmud, he has to have witnesses and stuff like that. He can't just haul her off to the to the priest. In the Chumash, I would say, you could be right. It could be that the purpose of the parish of Sota is to provide a setting where if she, if she is innocent, then life goes on. That is certainly a possibility. But I don't think, don't think that contradicts the point that the parish of Sota presumes that there's some kind of problem and that the the parsha of Sota is all about doing things secretly. It's it's it's, it's the idea of doing baseter, which for the which and therefore there, there's no human court that can actually figure it out. How do you function in the in the in the absence of, of any kind of real proof? There's no witnesses. There's no proof. So what is there? There's suspicions. So the, so then in that case, the Torah allows the uh, husband to bring it to the priest to determine guilt or innocence. The Talmud is bothered by that. 
They simply has carte blanche can bring her there, and the Talmud puts all kinds of, you know, strictures connected to that, etc. I mean, the, the the Talmudic view of salt is very interesting, but 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 in any event, in that in that in in that it is true that fundamentally, I think it places barriers upon the husband, all kinds of barriers upon the husband. It does other things as well, but the point about Seder is a very important point, and 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 the point I wanted to emphasize is that the violation is the violation of the covenant which is written down in the book. That's what's emphasized here in Devarim. It's written in the book. Which of course you have in the case of the Sota as well. And as you point out, it's done The secret things are or God can only determine the secret things. So this is uh, but God holds us accountable for what is done by Seder as well. That's chapter 29. And the next next verse, the next verse, right after we talked about going, following other gods, bowing down to them, right? And all the punishments, the next verse is, After all of these things are going to happen, the blessing and the curse, which is chapter 28. If you follow the Torah, blessing. If you fail to do so, horrible curses, terrible things will happen. And that's reinforced by chapter 29. And then it says, after all these things happen, the blessing and the curse, right? So what's going to be? You, you worship the other gods. So the Tchumash starts with the word, Vashevota Elevavecha. Where is this? What verse? 30, verse number 1 of chapter 30, and you you take to heart, right? You return to your heart. So it says, start in the first place, exactly. Start there in the first place, and it manifested in idolatry. It manifested in God's terrible anger, terrible anger, and threw us out, right? God threw us out. But Vayashrichem, Ashrich, threw us out. So if we take the parsha of chapter 24 to be the halacha, right? So obviously there's no way back. I mean, clearly, how could there be a way back? Because it's God's terrible anger, total betrayal of a trust, and it's done in secret on top of everything else. So there's no hope. So basically, that's the halacha, right? Halacha says, Lo Yashuvu can't take her back. So to our surprise, we read the parsha over here. And the parish over here seems to say precisely the opposite. It says, and you, one might say, return to your heart, take to heart. And any one of the nations where God has, God has thrown you out, kicked you out, pushed you out. And now you return to God and obey God, hear God's voice. What about if you return with all your heart and all your soul? You would want to make amends. You've been terribly punished. You told betrayal. And now you want to return. You want to return in, in truth. is a safer Devarim phrase. It appears several times in the book of Devarim. And it's part of a much larger theme of Sefer Devarim more than any book of the Bible by sorry, more than Chumash, emphasizes inner states, thoughts, emotions, love of God is a theme that appears only in Sefer Dvarim, 
We don't have it any other place to love God, love of God, fear of God, true return, etc., etc. Even the Seder emphasis, it's, it's inner states, which is very significant. So this person, whoever you may be, you want to return, and the next verse, what do you know? The next verse, so the next verse, in responding to the two shoves of the person, we have the two shoves in verse 3 of God. God will return, bring back the, your, your, your shavat shavutcha, bring back your captivity and have mercy upon you. Vishav, and return, and gather you up from all the nations where God has, God has scattered you. And the next verse, very famous verse, no matter where it may be, right? The word misham, shamayim and misham. No matter where you are, you could be the farthest, most far away as possible, the edges of the of, of, of heaven, right? From there will God bring you back. From there will God take you back. So, and bring you back to the land. So this is very surprising to us. And the question is, what do you make of this? Because on one hand, the book of Devarim, six chapters earlier said, if a man throws his wife out because uh, he found something wrong with her, he can never take her back again. <coughs> but over here it says that if God throws the people out because they have, they have uh, bowed down to other gods, Right? And there's great anger in the parish of Sota, and it's done in total betrayal, and it's done secretly and privately. And what do you know? But if you return with your heart, then God will re- God also returns to us. So we have four times over here the verb lashuv, and not only that, it actually continues. It's a process over here. God will open up your heart, right? Literally circumcise your heart. Open up your heart. Notice the word heart. So God will actually help you transform yourself to become a different person. God takes an active role over here. These phrases will appear in the book of Yermiyahu, by the way. It's very much connected to Yermiyahu. And God will place the curses, kol ha'alot, the alot were the previous chapter, all those curses. God will place them upon your enemies. Verse number 8, verse number 8, is it? Verse number 8. V'yatot tashuv, and you shall return. V'shamata b'kol Hashem. Notice the process. You already seem to return in the beginning. But there's return and there's return. And now you become, one might say, a different person because God is changing your nature. So since God changes your nature, there's another return. The first return was the former me, when I was at a certain level. Now I'm on a different level. So, I rec- so now I, I recognize there's a need for a different tshuva. What Rabbi Nachman talks about, tshuva ala tshuva, repentance on the repentance. Well, you have to repent for last year's sins. Why? Because the tshuva you did last year was from a different place. So that, that, was, your, that was your consciousness at that point. But now you're in a different consciousness and you see everything differently. 
including your repentance. You realize my repentance wasn't a good repentance because I repented with my understanding of last year. But now I'm in a different place. I have a different consciousness, so I need a different repentance. That's what it says, that's the Pshat in the Chumash. After you shall return and obey God and fulfill the commandments. And then God will bless you again. Because God shall return to rejoice in you. Not just the anger, but and not just, okay, it's all right, whatever, but God rejoices. So there's a whole process here. We've had the word Yoshuv six times now. Three times with God, three times with the people. We need one more. We'll get it, right? Of course, we'll have seven. Kitishma, right? And then it continues. Kitishma, Bakol Hashem, you will now obey, hear God's voice again. And to do all the commandments, Haktuva Basefer HaTorah Zeh, which is written in the Sefer Torah. I mean, you can't, it, you can't reference the previous chapters anymore, the big reference over here. And then it ends. This is the, called parashas, the, the, the parasha of, of, of return, parasha of tshuva. It's very beautiful. We always read this parasha. When did we read the parasha? Always. The Shab- no, one week before. It's the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah. No. Well, not exactly. But it's, you think you have two, the parasha, the tocha is always read two weeks before Rosh Hashanah. But this parasha is always read before Rosh Hashanah. Always. It never changes. The, the parasha of Tshuva is read always before Rosh Hashanah, seven times Roshuv. And the question that it raises is a very important question, actually. The Torah makes it very clear. Lo Yoshuv Lekachta. By the way, not only does the Torah say Lo Yoshuv Lekachta in the case of chapter 24, but there's something else. What got me thinking about this was something very. I'll tell you why I thought about thinking about this, what happened. Many years ago, I was in, uh, so I was, I was, for a couple of years, the family was living in Alon Shvut, in the Gush, where Yeshiva is, Haritzia. So uh, it was, I believe, Tisha B'av, actually. And then someone gets up to speak. So the guy who got up to speak was Yol Bin Nun. Yeah, very, very important person, actually. Yol Bin Nun, interesting guy. And he, um, you know, they just, the way it works in Israel, someone talks, no one says anything, just gives his little speech. So. Anyway, he spoke about the book of Devarim. He said, in Sefer Devarim, the relationship is described in the book of Devarim as father and son. That is true, actually. It appears many times. And the whole idea of the, the relationship of God to Israel as, as man, and, man and woman, husband and wife, that comes later on in the, in the prophetic writings. We don't have that in the book of Devarim. So I couldn't be silent to that point. I said, that's, that's, that's actually wrong. That, that's not, that's incorrect. Not, and I showed the parsha over here. It's all about salt. Actually, it's very central in the book. The, the primary it is fathers and sons as, as well, but the parsha of sota is central in the book of central to the covenant actually. So it's a total misreading of the book actually. It, it's um, sometimes you can't just be quiet. You know what I mean? With all but but, but it's, it's not right. And the prophet. What's his response? He doesn't say anything. Nothing. He didn't say anything. No, he didn't respond. What? Yeah. That dimension is not explicit. It's not explicit. That's right. That's why you have to know how to read, basically. But it's but it's but it's clear. It's not explicit. The truth about it is the most powerful things are never explicit. The most powerful things are things we either assume, unstated, hinted at. That's always more powerful than what you actually say, and. The entire, it's not just this, these few verses that's built on it. 
it's all of chapter 29, and it's, so it's chapter 28, the idea of the book, the idea of the writing, the idea of the betrayal, the idea of done in private, the idea of the anger, the idea of the exile. And now, amazing, in chapter 30, we have exactly the opposite. And what got me thinking about this, actually, was a different verse, which is a verse that appears at the end of chapter 28. It's a very striking verse. And that is when it talks about what's going to happen to the, the punishment. And the verse which struck me is the last verse of the Tochacha. The last verse of the, of the curses, actually. Where it talks about exile. And the verse is, Ve'ashivcha Hashem Mitzrayim Boniyot. God will send you back to Egypt in boats. Ba'derech Hashem Amarati Lucha Lo Tosifo Lirota. The path that I said, you'll never see it again. Ve'itmarkatem Shom Li'ayvecha you will sell yourselves there as male and female slaves, but the ain kone, which probably doesn't mean no one will buy you, but it means well, no one will buy you out. Nobody will redeem you, including God. Because in the first Tochacha, it talks about when I sent you into exile, I haven't forsaken you. with an iron. I don't reject you. But rather, I will bring you back. That's the that's Ka'ula. That's the whole parsha in chapter 25, 26. But here it says, no one's going to bring you back. So it sounds like I send you back, and that's it. That's where you are. And all of a sudden, we, ha- we have the parsha which talks about coming back and begins with the words, So it sounds like, in, when you read it through the prism of chapter 30, what it sounds like is that. <coughs> I'm not gonna. <coughs> I'm not gonna simply bring you back. In Sefer Vayikra, I said I'll bring you back. In Sefer Devarim, I will bring you back, provided you take the first step. The first, the first, and the last teshuva is the people. Hashevot you begin to think about it, and then kitoshuva Hashem. And in between, you have the other five lashuvs, three of which are God, two of which are the people. So it's an interactive process. So what the Chumash seems to be suggesting is that there's a difference between the Shulchan Aruch, as it were, and between what God does. When it comes to the Shulchan Aruch, it says, Lo Yashuv, you can't, you can't take the woman back. That's what it says. But, on, but surprisingly, on the contrary, uh, when it comes to God, God does take us back. Now, of course, one could ask the question, that's a little strange, actually. If, in fact, God takes us back, shouldn't the halacha reflect God's values? That's a good question. I'll tell you who, who, who believe that it should. That's the story in the, in the Christian Bible. It's the story of Jesus actually talks about that. It's a very famous story. The Sota comes. And that, that's interesting. So the point is, what he says, you know, who amongst you is so pure? But, but the fact of the matter is, it does raise, I think, a very interesting question, and I suspect that this kind of question, we don't have to go to the Christian Bible for it. I'm quite convinced that these kind of uh, sort of meta-questions are factored into the halachic process as well. They may not be, not be explicated that way, but all kinds of basic moral concerns, ethical concerns, are typically factored into the, to the, to the responsa. So there's something about it. You still have to play with the sources, but the fact of the matter is that there is something very puzzling about this complete 
distinction which is drawn between the husband and the and the wife and God and the people. It's very striking. Yes, sorry, what do you want to say? I, I now we'll get to your exactly, yeah. there's, there's some distinction between human relations and the relationship of people and God. That God feels that as far as a husband and wife are concerned, it's not possible to have a full reconciliation and he wants to keep to prevent that from happening. But for some God can be bigger than that, better than that, more generous. Yeah, I find that, that very problematic, I'll tell you the truth. No, I mean, it's probably true. In other words, it has something to do with human limitation and the, the divine lack of limitation. But you know something. But I would, think but then that would apply on any type of imitatio dei. One could always one could pick and choose and say, well, you can't bring it back. We're not big enough. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be angry. We should be slow to anger. In other words, if you pick and choose which qualities of God you can limit and which qualities of God you need to imitate, then it's a little bit uh, dicey. I think well, it's aspirational. In other words, the point is. It's true that, you know, it's very hard to truly forgive someone fully who hurt you. That's for sure true. On the other hand, the aspiration, the idea that we should be forgiving is certainly, you know, very much operative in our tradition. There's no question about that. So, you know, we could think of, it would depend on the case, but people make mistakes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it would depend on the kind of mistake that it is, etc. But the fact of the matter is that you know, repentance is something that's so built into, I mean, it's something so central to the religious life, you know, as the, I mean, Yom Kippur is one of the main days on a calendar, and, and it's not just Yom Kippur. So it's, I find it very striking. We can construct all kinds of cases, and I'm quite sure, by the way, we had, I remember we one of the programs in Israel, we had exactly this question. What do you actually do in these cases? We are very interested in this from a practical standpoint. What do you do? Not what's on the books, but Lebaisa. You're a Rav in a synagogue, you know? And someone comes, a couple comes to you with the following issue, you know what I mean? Okay, we had, had an affair, whatever it was, the brief one, a terrible mistake. We're married, we still love each other, we have three kids. What it, I was, so the question is, what do you actually do in that case? Now, very often they don't, they don't ask the Shiloh, they're not going to the always, but sometimes they do, actually. And what interested us was, just to know, we, we were learning Sota, actually. Huh. We wanted to know, that's how we approach the learning there, it's from many different angles. We learned the Gemara's, obviously, and all that. And we wanted to know what actually is done, mm-hmm. which is not the same as what's written in the books, because everybody knows that the halacha that is practiced is never just what's in the books. And very often, by the way, the same person who writes something in the books is not doing that, you know, <laughs> There are loads of examples of this. You know, it's, we, we don't actually know. We, we don't have a clue what actually takes place in, in many communities. Well, the, per, the person we spoke to, I'm not going to mention the name in particular, uh, but, but the person we spoke to who is a rabbi in Israel, without so many shul rabbis in Israel, the one we spoke to basically was saying that we tried, we look at the situation and we tried to figure a way around the sources. That, that was his answer. You know what I mean? So... I mean, obviously, it would depend on the, on the situation. But I think uh, you look at the whole picture, and I think that, you know, I'm, what I'm saying is, in this particular case, looking at the whole picture, even though the, the, even though the, the source may be pretty clear, but when you think about how the Torah presents it, at least in terms of God and Israel, we would hate to think that if we abandon God, God will never take us back. We, our entire, you know, 
sense of the Jewish people is rooted in the idea. We don't deny that. I've never met, I mean, maybe Yechezko Kaufman says that the, the prophets exaggerated the sins. Okay, he does say that. But, but I don't think, generally speaking, we say, you know, God forgive us, we didn't really do such bad stuff. You know, this, these are exaggerations, you know. Those kinds of things, maybe on Tisha B'Av we say it, but the rest of the year we don't say those things. We accept responsibility, and we say, nonetheless, you are forgiving God. We can, we, we, we are, we, we're not the same person that made the mistake. We have all kinds of different ways, you know, tshuva, and the, the Baal tshuva is on a higher level than the, the one who never sinned, etc., etc. So uh, that was the question that we raised at that point in terms of what, we asked this one particular rabbi, but we just wanted to get a sense what what do you actually do? That was that was the question. Yes. But uh, am I right in assuming that in the case of the first husband not being able to get his wife back? Yes. It's not about him uh, forgiving or not forgiving. The, the way it's, 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 it's written is about something I don't know, ritualistic or something. Right. Defiling the land. Yes. So defying the land. It's not about him being uh, unforgiving. That is true. That that is a good point. That is a true point. But my my point is that's true. It's not about even though it does say, and that's very interesting. Why did he divorce her in the first place? Kimatsaba ervatavar. So it depends how you read kimatsaba ervatavar. Beishamai took it literally. She she acted in a way that was promiscuous, that's inappropriate, that is wrong, etc. Whether technically speaking, they're two witnesses or not. But he divorces her because she does. She's acting in a in a in a, in a bad way. That's ervat tovar. Rabbi Akiva had a different point of view. It's subjective. You know, he doesn't like the way she makes the soup. She she burnt the soup or something, which is very different. Which is saying it's not about a mistake. It's about people not getting along. You could good people sometimes don't get along. They're good people, but they don't see eye to eye on things. They have different personalities or whatever it is. Not that one is bad. Just that that's, it's a mismatch, you know what I mean? Those kind of things happen too. So, yeah, you're right about that point. I'm, that's true. question would hinge on Ervat Davar. When it comes to the second husband, there it doesn't say why. He hates her, the second guy. But the first husband, the first guy, Kimotsaba Ervat Davar. Okay. So this, I, I mentioned all of this. I think it's very interesting. But I mentioned all of this because these parshiot are a background now to Lemar, to Yermiel is playing with these parshiot. And what, and what is he actually saying? That, that, that's, that's very unclear. Yes, what would you say, Shmuel? This is very striking for me because in general you seem to push the notion of, of, the, of the Tanakh having a theology that human beings are not God and they're distant from God, actually, just at least to some extent. And they need to know that they are not God. That's and, true. And I so, do say that. And so, no, no, and so, so, so what I'm saying is there's, I mean, there's explicitly a verse, my ways are not your ways. So, so you would expect that there would be actually be a difference between what we expect of God in terms of tshuva and what we expect of human beings in terms of tshuva. Yeah, but there are other verses, such as okay. via, via, via halachta. How about the verse via, Elohim. How about the verse via halachta bidrachav? Sure. Via halachta bidrachav, which the Gemara takes to be, mahu rachum afatar rachum, mahu chanun, now it does. It never says in the Gemara Mahu Kanoi Afata Kanoi. That it doesn't say. So the the Talmud is selective about which of God's attributes we are to mirror. But Rachel and Chadon are certainly two of them. 
Those are things that our tradition, the rabbis have chosen, you can read it the other way. Our rabbis have chosen to read it that way. So I'm saying from, and I think they chose to read it that way, there's something, something to be said for that. So it's, I don't think it's arbitrary either. Uh, a, little, a little zealousness isn't so bad, maybe, but the rabbis were very suspicious of zealots, basically. Extremely suspicious. Uh, even Pinchas, they put all kinds of parameters around him. So it's one thing to say we're not God, which is true. And that is said, that is true. It's not about my theology, because my theology is actually irrelevant. Who cares what I think? But the fact of the matter is, right, I'm not a bad reader. And the Chum, and the Chumash seems to, the, the core point of the, of the book of Breshit, the core idea is the human being is not God. That's where Judaism and Christianity part ways, actually. On that point, the human being can never be God. We can be human, we can be, we can connect to God. But at the end of the day, the greatest is, is mortal and finite and makes mistakes. 120 years, Moshe Rabbeinu, greatest. He's not perfect. He makes many mistakes. And the fact is, that's central to the Chumash. So we're not God, but we can still act in ways that are allow us to connect to God. That, that's what I would say. I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think that it's, to me, to me this particular Sota business stri- strikes me as very interesting in terms of these parashiyot because... And let me say one other thing about Baseter, about Baseter, which I think is right. You know, I'm working on this book of Shmuel now, and we're almost finished with it, hopefully. We got to, but uh, it's interesting that, you know, I, there are many, many people have written about Shmuel, many people. And what strikes me is that, you know, the, the idea that someone does something secretly, let's say David and Bathsheba. So David has, but David has, as we all know, Uriah Hachiti is killed. David gives instructions to the through, through, through Uriah to the general to have Uriah Hachiti killed, which he does. I, the specifics of it, I don't want to get into now. That's what he does. So afterwards, the prophet comes to David with his parable, you know, Kivsata Rosh, and David says that the rich guy took the one one lamb of the poor guy. David gets very angry. What a terrible person. He deserves to die. He has no mercy. You are the, you are the person, says the prophet. Mm. Not that. And then the prophet says this. He says, and then he says, Koabar Hashem. Koabar Hashem. He says, I'm going to punish you. You killed Uriah with the sword. You killed him with the sword. And not only that, then you took his wife. And not only that, and you killed him with the sword of the enemy. And the point, I think, is that for the, at least for the author of Samuel, killing him in, a, in, a, in an indirect way, it's exactly the opposite of, of, the, of the way the good yeshiva bacha thinks. The way the yeshiva bacha thinks, and I've read this also, Shmuel, written by yeshiva bacha. I'm also yeshiva bacha, you know what I mean? But there's a sense that if you did the act is one thing, if you do it indirectly, that's not as bad. It's a grammar, and there are all kinds of halakhic discussions around that, which it may be true from a certain, it's a very interesting question, but I'll tell you one guy who doesn't believe that at all, whoever wrote the book of Shmuel. It's the opposite, actually. Not only did you kill him, and you killed him, don't tell me indirect, that, you know, that's when you learn Sanhedrin in the, eighth, the ninth paragraph, maybe, okay, fine. No, you killed him. And not only that, you killed him in a sneaky way, and that's worse 
that Oto Arachta Becherem is worse. Not just you killed him. He also took his wife in addition. But, but even worse than that, you killed him in an indirect way with the sword of the enemy. And that is even worse. The Baseter, for Shmuel anyway, is worse. Of course. And not only that, I don't want to give away the book, but the fact of the matter is, the entire story of David and Bathsheba, which is the mo- his ov- most overt crime, it's not his only crime, but the most overt crime, when does the story take place, remember? During the war? Twilight. 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 It takes place, the eighth Erev. It takes place when you can't actually see. And that, Kiata Sita Baseta, says the prophet. But I'm going to get you Neged Hashemish when the sun is midday, when the sun is out, in the the bright lights. And that is something which is so central to the great book of Shuel. So the idea of Seter, he didn't make it up. It's in the Chumash over here, the, the emphasis, constant emphasis on Seter, which is very striking over here. And the parsha that the Book of Dvarim loves about Seter is the main parsha of Seter. It's the parsha of Sota. That's the parsha of Sota. Now let's get. Now we are supposed to be learning Yirmiyahu, so we got to get back to Yirmiyahu. Now let's see. He's Yirmiyahu is interpreting the Chumash. It's interesting over here. He's a Kohen, so he's entirely he can do that. He's a. Now let's let's go back to Yirmiyahu. What did Yirmiyahu say? Yeah. So we are. What page? I don't know what page we're on, but I tell you what chapter we're on. Chapter 3 of Jeremiah. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 3. Now we got Lebar, it starts. Lebar. If a man sends his wife out, right? this is exactly the language of the Chumash, right? And she, can he take her back again? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. The land will become impure, right? But then, the Rabim, so Yermio connects the two of them. You could be 100% right when you're saying it's good. But Yermio connects the two parshiot. And not only that, you've had so many lovers, says, says Yermio. Do you think you could come back to me? So the, so the inference you draw is you can't come back to me. But then, when you continue to read, lo and behold, that's not what he says. He always, it's very striking about Yermio. You really see that this person is torn between these two sides. He keeps not going to accept the idea that you can't go back. He does believe that people won't necessarily go back, that they won't have a, a real tshuva. Because in the Chumash, it's Bechol Levavcha, Bechol Avshecha. Yerbiyo doesn't believe it's going to be Bechol Levavcha, Bechol Avshecha. Or God doesn't believe that in this case. But were it so, were, were that the case, then that's a different story. And what's striking is, if you look at the continuation over here, which is verse number two, he presents, now Yermio over here, he's not the only prophet who does this, but he presents the sins of Israel. His model for sinning is the uh, unfaithful spouse. So in other words, the very imagery that he uses right after this business of can you return, right? He then talks about Israel as the unfaithful spouse, as the one who is uh, defiling the land with the debauchery, right? The brazenness of a street woman, right? The, the, the language over here, which is language which is playing off the Sota story, the betrayal story, etc., etc. So he's he's reading those two things together. He's reading those partials together. That's what we have here in the first five verses of chapter three. Now, let's see what we have next in the chapter.
So, so the, 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 the parsha that he's referencing, the key word of the parsha that he's referencing, both in chapter 24 of Devarim and the connected chapter of chapter 30, uh, and chapter 29, actually, and chapter 30, uh, and chapter 28, that's all, that's the first thing we have. And now what's interesting is the way Yirmiyot will play with this idea of return. So here we, this begins in verse number 6. Now, verse number six, just, just tell me when it's, a, like, uh, what time do we start? 10 o'clock? 10, yeah. 10, tell, me when it, tell, me, tell me when it's 11, that's all. So. It's a yeah. 7 after, 8 after. It's after 11? Okay, wait, quickly, let's go. Yoshio This is verse number 6 of chapter 3. asher mishuva Yisrael. No, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse number 6. It came to, God spoke to me, in the days of King Yoshio. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a very important point about Yoshio. Yeah. Right. Uh, right, of course. Right. 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 There's no doubt. And, and the book of Devarim does talk about the exile. I mean, he's three friends. it's actually referencing the exile, however you understand the history of it. But sure, of course, it's, it's, it makes total sense. Now, the point is, the point about Yoshio is like this. Yoshio has the, is the king who makes the great religious uh, reformations sometime in the middle of his kingship. Uh, okay, 621. So, right, so 621... And he's king for about, I forget, I think it's 20, I think 22 years or something. So the point is that, I forget the exact number of years, there is the pre-discovery of the, of the, of the, of the, of the Sefer Torah and the post-discovery. So we don't know, in, in Yirmiyahu's prophecies about during the period of Yoshiyahu, we don't always know when the particular prophecy is taking place. Is it taking place before or after? Because afterwards, there is a, a general reformation. Now, according to Yirmiyahu, by the way, the reformation of Yoshio was not fully was not fully uh, accepted by the people. The Book of Kings and, and and the Book of Chronicles may have a slightly different view of that, but Yirmiyahu suggests, and we'll get to there, that the people did not fully actually, uh, you know, accept the uh, what Yirmi, what Yoshio was doing. In any event. Uh, we have the following prophecy. This is a very interesting prophecy. Uh, remember that during the time of Yoshiyahu, so some of the, the tribes have already been exiled. The, the northern kingdom is exiled. And during the reign of Yoshiyahu, this is an interesting historical fact, Yoshiyahu makes an attempt during his reign to try to reconnect to these other tribes. That's a very important point. So now God says to... Uh, God says to Yermio, in the time of Yoshio, have you seen Asher Asta Meshuvah Yisrael? Do you see what Meshuvah Yisrael? Now, what does Meshuvah Yisrael mean? What does the word Meshuvah mean? Yeah, that's the question. So there are two different words. There's two different words, which will appear as Yermio plays with this. It's the word is Lashuv, is to return. But there's another word, Meshuvah, or Shovavim. Badim Shovavim, right? Wayward children, wayward, wayward, right? Yeah, it's general. 
I think it's negative. Barib Shovavib, right? You have it you have it later on explicitly. Shuva Eli Barib Shovavim, right? Return to me, you wayward is a good word actually. I think it's right. Meshuvah Yisrael is actually negative. I think Meshuvah Yisrael is probably related to the word Shovav, which is in modern Hebrew, we have the word Shovav as well. So, uh, Yelud Shovav, sometimes they say. Yeah, in modern Hebrew, it's like mischievous, right. In modern Hebrew, it has a mischievous quality to it. That's right. It's not right. I would say that it's not wicked. It's not, a Shovav is not a wicked child. Is, no, but I think it's right. I think that's yeah, a, right. I think it's more mischievous, uh, misbehaving, that kind of thing, but not outright wicked. So God says the following. Now, what he, after I read this, you'll tell me if this sounds familiar from some other place. Okay? It should sound familiar. Have you seen? Okay, so the, this is Israel is the northern kingdom. Have you seen what the northern kingdom is doing? They go to all these different places, right? Betraying me, promiscuous behavior. And I said, after I saw these things, come back to me. So God says, come back to me, right? But they refuse to return to me. The Shovev refuses the Washuv. This is what Israel does, the northern kingdom. Vatera Bogoda Achota Yehuda, and her sister, who has betrayed me, Bogoda, right? Uh, faithless Jew, they translate. With God is to is to be to betray, and Judah, who, who betrays me, sees what her sister does, right, and takes this as a model. For Era, I I see, Ki Alkol Odot Asher Noafam B'Shuva Yisrael Shilachtiya. Right? And because of what 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 uh, what what here interesting rebel Israel, naughty Israel, bad Israel had did, I sent her away and I gave her the bill of divorce. It's exactly the parsha of the Chumash, right? I gave her the bill of divorce. And Judah, who still remains in the land, the southern kingdom, David's kingdom, the temple, they didn't, they didn't, they, they, they didn't perceive actually what was happening, and they acted in the same fashion. So they should have learned from their sister's mistakes. And from her behavior, it goes back to what he said at the beginning of the chapter, right? You defile the land. So Judah has defiled the land. The God b'cholzot roshava elai b'goda achota Yehuda b'choliba ki b'sheker nu b'ashem. And and but 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 Judah did not return, really return. Had they really returned, no problem. But they returned b'sheker. They pretended to return, but they didn't return. Vayom Hashem elai sitkan nafsham m'shuva Yisrael mi b'goda Yehuda. And God says. Sinful Israel is still better than the, than the betrayers of Judah. Let me ask you a question. Right, exactly. Well, neither one comes off well here. That's what you know what I mean. That's, that's the old, that's the old joke, you know, with the, the husband, you know. 
guy gets up. Yeah, guy gets up and says, "So and so has died, an abusive person, a liar from top to bottom, one of the stingiest guys you ever meet, and just a nasty person." Meanwhile, he's going on like this, and finally, someone can't take it anymore. It's supposed to be a, a eulogy, you know. Says. Does anybody have anything good to say about him? Little guy gets up in the back. His brother was worse. <laughs> anyway, that's the. Now let me ask you a question. This, 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 this parallel. Who knows? Where do we are to? Only Ashkenazim. Sfarim don't have to answer this question. No, but maybe the Sfarim do have to answer. I think I'll tell you. Where do we have this in our liturgy? Where does it? Not exactly this, but it's based on this. It's a, written by Ibn Gabiro, actually. Where do we have it in our liturgy? Who knows? I'm disappointed that I know. Suri doesn't know. Suri doesn't know. Nobody, Nobody knows, knows, right? No? Should know. I'll tell you where you have it. Here's what's very interesting. So at Tishabov, the Minig Ashkenaz is that the night of Tishabov, we say virtually no keynote at all. In fact... I was interested in this. I actually looked at what, what, what they do with broyers, what the Yekis do, because they, they don't change anything. And the Yekis, they have virtually no keynote whatsoever on, on the night of Tisha B'Av. They say virtually nothing at all. They read Eicha, they have one tiny little kina based on the last chapter of Eicha, and, that, and that's it. So the other Ashkenazic shuls, many of them have a few keynote that they say at night. But the keynote that they say at night are not written by, uh, by, uh, by Ashkenazim. They're written by Svardim. And one of them is by Ibn Ezra, about the Zodiac and all that business. And one of them is by Ibn Gabiro. And he has a poem there. I believe that some uh, Sephardic communities say that same thing in the day of Tisha B'Av. I'm not sure about that. And what, what it is, is it's a conversation between Israel and Judah. And the conversation is not who are the biggest sinner. That's not the conversation. The conversation is who has suffered more from God's... That's the conversation. So each one claims, you know, we, 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 suffer, we suffered so much, you know, that kind of argument. Who's, who, who's had it worse? So Ibn Gabiro takes this, these verses, actually, and transposes them to Tishimov, but the conversation is about the punishment. The conversation is about God's anger. Who, who, who has suffered more? On one hand, Israel says, I suffered more. I was exiled first. You found it? Yeah. He calls it, right, exactly. Written by Shlomo Ibn Gabiro, as I said, right? He, 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 he references Echesco chapter 23. Echesco 23. But it's in Yermio, actually. I don't know why he says Echesco 23. It's there also. But it's... Probably because, now I'll tell you why, he, 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 because Ibn Gabiro, instead of saying Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom, he has two different terms for them. Allah and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Oliva. Allah, God's tent, and the one whose tent is, is it, God is in the tent. So that Allah and Oliva is in Yechezkel. But, the, but, but, Yehuda, but Yehuda and Shobro, which is the same thing, is in Yerbiyah, which precedes Yechezkel. So actually... It's a it's 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 actually playing off before you get to Yechesko, it plays off exactly this section over here. Who was worse? And actually God determines in this case, God says, I think that Judah's worse. Uh, 
for one thing, Judah should have learned from the from the experience of the other, because Israel was exiled earlier. So, so Sidka Navsha Meshuva Yisrael Mibogeda Yehuda. Sidka Navsha probably Ibn Gabiro translates and she justifies herself better because in, in, in Ibn Gabiro's poem they're talking to each other. That's not true over here. In any event, so this is the. Fine. This is the. Uh, this is the pre- presentation of Yirmiyahu. What is clear, though, is that had they had they returned, their return would be accepted. But 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 Israel doesn't return at all, and Judah's return is false. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not true. Right? They say the words, but they don't actually really mean it. So therefore, they they can't be brought back. So he plays with over. It's very interesting how he plays with this word of Roshuv, which is the central word of these parshiot. If you keep reading it, you see, for example, in verse twelve, Haloch v'karata etadvarim ha'elatzafoda. So God commands you say these words means facing the north, presumably. The trouble will come from the north, from from Bavel. Be'amad shuva b'shuva Yisrael nu Hashem lo apil panai mochem. Where's this? This is verse number 12. Verse 12. Oh, wow. Chapter 3, verse number 12. It can't be more explicit. Turn to the north. I think he means, perhaps he means to the Jews who are in the north. The Jews are, remember that, and Yechesko, for because there were two different exiles. The first exile is to Bavel, the time of Yechadia, and there the elite of society and many of the army people are exiled to Bavel. And the question is, the Jews living in Babylonia, what, is, what should their attitude be towards living in Babylonia? Should they see it as, we'll be here for a couple of years and go back? And Yirmiyo is telling them all the time, don't, don't, don't think in those terms. You're there for your lifetime. Settle there, buy houses, pray for the welfare of the government. That's Yirmiyoh's approach. So he's talking to the Jews in Bavel already, Yirmiyoh. And he and and what and the message over here, he's, he's commanded by God to tell them, Shuva Meshuva Yisrael. He plays with it. Shuva Meshuva Yisrael, Nubashem. And if you do, I will not, I will not be angry forever. He's, I will I, I will I, I, I'm angry. But I'll be a forgiving, forgiving God. I'm chassid. I'm a compassionate one. I'm bal chesed, etc. So, God, God refers to God as being a chassid. I'm a chassid, says God. And therefore, what does it mean a chassid? It means I'm willing to to forgo and, and, to, and to forgive. We shuva b'shuva Yisrael. So, but however, the, you have to understand. True confession <coughs> means a full acceptance of responsibility. That's the message. And then in verse number 14, Shuvu banim shovavim no'um Hashem, ki anochi ba'alti bochem. Again, the same thing. He plays with Yirmiyot, by the way. In general, we should know this. He repeats many times. He has stock phrases he repeats many, many times. It's not that he's not capable of, 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 of a different language. It's part of his approach to prophecy, repetition. 
repetition is very important, has its own power to it. So it's not that he's, he has some very beautiful passages, he's quite poetic, but he repeats over and over again the same, for emphasis, Shuvu Banim Shavim Nu Hashem, and then you have the end of verse number 14, which is interesting. V'wakachti etchem echad me'ir u'shnaimi mishmacha ve'veti etchem tzion. And what does that mean? I will t- take you, one from a city, two from a family, and bring you back to Tzion. So what is the force of that statement? I will see that collect one from this city, two from this city, three from that city. <coughs> so there are two different ways to understand that. Two different, totally different ways. One is that even though I'm going to return you, I'm not going to return a lot of you. I'll be very selective. So I'll maybe in this city I'll bring three people, in that city I'll bring four people, in this city. So the, the focus would be, if you read it this way, the focus is I am going to forgive, but my forgiveness has its limits as well. I'm not going to take you all, bring you all back. I'll take one from here, three from there, five from there. Wait, but Avram wants everybody spared in Sadov. There's the opposite. There, if you have ten, spare everybody. It's a great interpretation of Now what? Right, but circumcise the heart, I would say, is has implications for the whole person, presumably. See, there's the, there's the other way to read it, which I think is the better way to read it. It's not that there are statements that God says, are always going to bring back, Yeshayahu says it, old boss, Syria, 10% will return, that kind of thing. But there's another way to read this very differently, which is, I'm going to bring. I'm trying to bring back as many people as possible, and I'm. I'm not going to just go to the big urban centers. You know what I mean, and bring them back from there. Oh no, I'm going to every single town. If I find two people in this town, I'll bring them back. And three in that town, I'll bring them back. That God is actually searching for the people to bring back, which is exactly the opposite of a way to to read this. means no matter where, is what it says in the Chumash. Even if you're in the farthermost corners of heaven, right? From there, God will bring you back. Doesn't mean they're all in the farthermost corners of heaven, but even wherever you may find yourself, God will search and bring you back. In short, what I found very interesting about this Perak, apart from the play on Shovavim and, and, and Shuv, is how Yermio actually reads chapter 30 that I will bring you back. But he starts off, the chapter starts off by saying, listen, if a man sends his wife away, he can never bring her, can he bring her back? Would anybody say such a thing? Sounds like it's impossible. But the entire force of the chapter, the entire force from beginning to end is, on the contrary, that that in fact, I will bring you back, which I think takes us back to the interesting question about how one reads those two parashio to the Chumash. Because it strikes me that at least through the prism of Yahu, he's suggesting that at least the way God sees it is, and even though this is a much greater betrayal, there's no, no comparison, God says, because you have Patizni with so many others, right? Uh, in the Chumash, maybe the woman did something wrong, but it's not explicit. This is explicit. Nonetheless, there is always the possibility of, 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 of return. So I think we'll stop at this point then. It's 11.30, right? Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. so we'll stop at this point, and uh, we're going to continue. I... We're not going to go in, in order of every chapter. Uh, the next thing I'd like to look at, there's a little more to be said about this. Uh, well, actually, there's more to be said. We'll have to, there's other things in the chapter that are very interesting. 
And uh, then we will, after we finish with this, I think we'll go to uh, Lulu of chapter 4, then chapter, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is very important. Yeah. Um, can I ask a clarification? So we're saying here, at least Jeremiah sees it that way too, that the betrayal of God is a greater sin than certainly the ervat davar that we talked about at the very, very beginning. But what about, is it also a greater sin than the sota? In other words, is the individual sin against a husband okay, uh, uh, less grievous in the eyes of what Jeremiah is using his analogy? Is it less grievous than the betrayal of God? Is that what we're supposed to understand? And that's why we have the potential problem here. The dilemma is, if God can take you back and his betrayal was super difficult, right. um, how can man not take back the strained wife? Right. So are we always to understand that the the betrayal on earth that, that these chapters in Deuteronomy and Numbers ex- explicate, are they never as grievous as the betrayal of God? I don't know about that. I mean, presumably the betrayal of God is the greatest sin. I mean, idolatry is the great sin of the Bible, but uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm more raising it as a question. I think that it's... Uh, the question I'm asking is, you have a... You have, you, you have, there are always laws... Every community needs laws. You can't function without law. Uh, but the point is, the law, there are laws on the book, and then there are values. And sometimes, the, sometimes the, when interesting problems emerge, I think they always emerge. The, the laws can never fully. The laws are always always imperfect by its nature, because for a very simple reason, it's what the great Hasidic masters understood. Actually, it's from Reb Nachman. <laughs> for Nachman, the Torah is a story. Stories are the main thing. And the reason stories are the main thing, it's such a big emphasis on stories, is because the story is about a particular person. The halach is one rule for everybody. That actually can never really fully work because no two people are in the same place. They can do exactly the same thing, but has two very different meanings. So from one perspective, you, you, we need laws. You can't function without laws. You need, society needs rules. On the other hand, we want to take into account all kinds of other things, personal situations, other values necessarily that come into conflict, etc. So that's where the that's the question I'm raising actually, and I raise it through the prism of of these two parshiot, which Yirmiyo cites them both. One is you can't bring the man can't bring his, the wife back, and the other is no matter how far you've strayed and you've betrayed, and there's unbelievable anger and death and destruction, but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a gracious God, says God. I, I, I don't bear grudges forever. So that is where the interesting question is. And then how Yermio plays with the language of the Chumash. Shuv on one hand and Shovev on the other. Shuvu Banim, as if he's saying, you know, as if he understands it. Banim Shovevim, but you can still come back. That, that's, that was my point. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Stop. Yeah.